Galatians 2, 1 to 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are a couple of facts about Christianity that are remarkable and somewhat contradictory. One thing is that Christianity is able to break down divisions among peoples. And there is no organization on earth like the Christian church that has included so many different people from so many different backgrounds and united those people in a common faith and a common purpose. It's remarkable. There is absolutely nothing like it on the planet, nor has there ever been. Extraordinary. It's also true, on the other side, that at the local level, it has proved difficult in many cases to have different groups worshiping and meeting and living together in community uh, because of those various differences. And so, while globally it is the most international and united body and diverse body that has ever existed, locally it has often proved difficult uh, to have different groups in the same local church. This is not a new phenomenon. In fact, in fact, the ancient church faced this situation right off the bat. As you know, Jesus was Jewish. 
the original apostles were Jewish, and all the original Christians were Jewish. But then, some Gentiles began to believe. And this was something of a surprise to the Jewish Christians, because they hadn't really contemplated that that could be a possibility, that non-Jews could be Christians. And so these Gentiles came into the church, and that wasn't so much a problem in Jerusalem, because the Jerusalem church was a Jewish church, but as the gospel went out to other cities, there were Jews and Gentiles in the same church. And that represented uh, and caused a number of difficulties. Now, what Paul does here in this section of Galatians is he continues to tell his story. And as you remember, chapter 1, he said basically two things. There is only one gospel. And uh, he went on to say from his own story, he says, the gospel I preach to you is that one gospel, and I know it's that one gospel because I received it directly from Jesus Christ, and I did not depend on the apostles in Jerusalem for my gospel. I received it from Jesus. Now he goes on to tell about his experience with the apostles in Jerusalem. And here he talks about his second visit to Jerusalem. He already told us about his first visit, which lasted just a couple of weeks, and he only saw a couple of folk. He saw Peter, and he saw James. But now he's going back after 14 years. Now, why is he telling us this story, and why is this important? It's important because he's telling us this story in order to resist an alteration to the gospel that was taking place in the regions of Galatia. He was trying to resist this this deviation from the gospel, and this deviation was having the effect of dividing the church, the church composed of Jews and non-Jews alike. So we pick up the story, and he says, after 14 years, in verse 1. Now, we don't know if it's after uh, 14 years after his call to the ministry, or 14 years after his... His first visit to Jerusalem doesn't really matter, but it would make a little bit of difference there of three years, however we date that. But he says he went up again, and he took along with him, he went along with uh, Barnabas, and Barnabas was Paul's initial partner in ministry. In fact, Barnabas was the one who got him involved in ministry in the first place in Antioch. And uh, he went with Barnabas, his partner, and he said he took along Titus as well. Now, he mentions that Titus was a Greek. Let's talk, about, let's talk about terminology because he uses different terms here. On the one hand, he talks about the ethnic groups. It's translated here, the Gentiles. He also refers to Titus as a Greek. And then he also refers to the uncircumcised. These are all the same people. These are all non-Jews. The ethnic group, the nations, the Gentiles, the, uh, the uncircumcised, the Greeks all on this side, and then he uses two words to describe the Jews. He calls them, on the one hand, the Jews, and he also calls them the circumcised. So he uses various terms here, but he's really talking about only two groups. And he said, Titus, one of his companions, was a Greek, that is to say, he was not a Jew. Now, Paul went up to to Jerusalem, he says, because God told him to. God told him to, verse 2. I went up because of a revelation. And the reason he went up was to set before them the gospel that he had been preaching for all of these years. For some 14 years, he went up to set the gospel before them. Look at verse 2. Now, he met with those, this is kind of a curious expression. He met with those who seemed. Uh, That, in English, we need to say seemed what, right? And so our translation says seemed 
What's it say? Influential. But he says this four times. In verse 2, he simply says, I went and I said it privately before those who seemed. And then if you look at verse 6, he mentions it twice. He says, and from those who seemed. And then he says it again, I say who those who seemed. And then second time it says, uh, those who seemed to be something. That's what he says, literally. And then in verse 9, he says, who seemed to be pillars. Now, this sounds kind of disrespectful on the one hand, but he explains. He says, this is not about human personalities. This is not about, uh, about stars here. This is not about humans. He, he clarifies in verse 6. He says, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. So we're not talking about uh, them. We're not talking about me. This is not about, about following humans. This is all about God and what comes from God. And he says he set before them, including James, Cephas, and John. James, the leader of the church, the brother of Jesus. Cephas, also named Peter. And John, one of the disciples. He set before them what he was preaching. Now, he says he did so privately. Why did he do so privately? Well, it looked like there was a a controversy raging, and he didn't want this to spill out into the the church. And so he said, let's let's just the leaders meet together and, and, and settle this and make sure that we're on the same page so that we can have a united front with the entire church. He didn't want to bring the, the, a possible difficulty to the entire church. But look at what he says at the end of verse 2. It, it's it's uh, striking. He, says, I, um, he said, I, I set before them uh, the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. What can that possibly mean? It cannot mean... It cannot mean that Paul was saying, maybe I got this wrong. And maybe for 14 years I've been preaching the wrong thing. And I've been running in vain. And so I said it before them privately so that they could correct me and fix me. And if I've been running in vain, I'll have to change course. It cannot mean that. Why not? Because that would go against the entire argument up to this point. Where he's saying there's only one gospel... And I preach that gospel because I got that gospel directly from Jesus Christ. He's not, he's not putting in doubt the gospel that he was preaching. But he is recognizing that if he went before these Jerusalem leaders and he put before them his gospel and they were preaching something different, then that would be devastating to the whole work of Christianity. It would, it would make much of the work in vain if word got out that Paul was preaching one thing and the Jerusalem apostles were preaching something else. That would be devastating. That would make in vain much of the labor of all of them. That would be highly destructive to the entire mission. And so he wanted to handle this privately with them. Now, on behalf of the the Gentile churches, he said he resisted some. He said there were some. They were trying to have this private meeting. And he said some people snuck in. There were some spies there. And he says, uh, these false brothers, he's not mincing words with these in verse 4, says these false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved to you. This is kind of parenthetical here. But he's saying, I was just having this conference with the Jerusalem pillars, 
And there were others who snuck in to try to cause problems. This is the second time he mentions these, these opponents. If you go back and look at uh, chapter 1, verse 7, he says, There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They were at work in Galatia and Asia Minor, and they were at work in Jerusalem as well. They were trying to distort, and now we realize what they were trying to do. They were trying to enslave people again. They were trying to take away freedom from believers. And we'll see in the rest of this letter how that plays out. But he says, We did not give in to them for even a minute. Because if we had, you all would have lost the Gospel. You all would have been brought back into slavery. Now, um, the most important outcome of this meeting, this second meeting in Jerusalem, was that the Jerusalem leaders completely affirmed Paul's message and Paul's ministry. That's the takeaway. Now, this is, this is an important balance from chapter 1. In chapter 1, Paul was emphasizing what? I was independent. I didn't receive anything from them. And so that argument could kind of go too far, couldn't it? The, his opponents could say, oh, oh, you're independent of the Jerusalem apostles. You are a rogue. You are an independent operator. You have condemned yourself by being a schismatic, a separatist. And so now he, he brings balance to the argument. He's saying, I didn't receive the gospel from them, but when they heard what I was preaching, they completely affirmed the message I'm preaching. We're preaching the same thing. And notice how he says that. In verse 7, he says, on the contrary, well, verse 6, he says, those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, so they recognized that it was the same gospel. It was just different target groups. Paul was going mainly to the Gentiles, although he preached usually to the Jews when he arrived in a city, and to the God-fearing Gentiles. But he was, his ministry was focused on the Gentiles. Peter's ministry, although he was the first one to preach to Gentiles, his ministry was mainly focused on the Jews, and they recognized that, but they recognized the same gospel to both. They also recognized, here in this parenthetical statement in verse 8, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. They recognized Paul's ministry, that God was working in Paul just as God was working in Peter. And then verse 9, their names here, James, Cephas, John, those who seemed to be pillars, they perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. So here, complete agreement shaking hands and saying, we are one on this. The only thing they did is they said, let's have a division of labor. You focus on this group, we'll focus on that group. They said that Barnabas and I should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only had one one, one clause here that said, don't forget the poor. Don't forget the poor. And this is probably thinking about the poor in Jerusalem and the poor in Judea. And we see twice, maybe on this very occasion when Paul went up to Jerusalem, uh, twice he took a special offering. He took a special offering from the church in Antioch, and he took a special offering from all the, the Gentile churches as a relief effort to the Jewish believers who were suffering poverty. And he says, I was eager to do that, and we see that Paul was eager to do that, not to forget the poor. So, um, 
So far, so good, right? Everything's solved. Everything's pacific. Everything's peaceful. There's no difference between what Paul was preaching and what the Jerusalem apostles were preaching. And everything looked like it was settled. But then a test case arose. Actually, a couple test cases, but Paul records one test case, and this whole letter to the Galatians is another test case, but they're related. The test case was when Peter went up to Antioch. And Antioch was the home base of Barnabas and Saul, Paul. They were sent out from there. That was their home church, their sending church. And it was a church that was managing this this Jew-Gentile thing. It was a church that was was exemplary because it was it was able to to bridge these differences with the gospel and it was able to have in one body Jews and Gentiles each one probably following certain customs but 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 putting aside things as well so that they could join together in fellowship now peter went and visited there we don't know why but maybe just to check it out maybe just to enjoy the fellowship maybe to encourage them but peter went and visited and when he visited, when he visited, we had this clash of titans. We had Paul publicly rebuking Peter. How did he do that? Why did he do that? How, how did he dare Paul rebuke Peter? He said, well, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What did he do? Well, it explains, verse 12. Before certain men came from James... You remember James is the leader of the Jerusalem church. He lived as a pious Jewish Christian his whole life following Jewish customs. Before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So what did he do? All he did was when some people came from James... He stopped eating with this group and he started eating with this group of Jews who had come along. That may not sound like such a big deal. He was eating with these Gentiles and now some visitors came and he just started eating with them. But it actually was a big deal. It was a big deal for two reasons. One, because of how the church was composed. The church was composed of Jews and Gentiles who were really struggling to meet together and to live together as best as they could. And also it was a problem because of who Peter was. Peter was not just somebody who had come in off the street and was sitting in the corner. Peter was the Apostle Peter. He knew the Lord Jesus. And uh, his example was overwhelming for some. If you look at what happened in verse 13, it says, "...and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically." along with him, so that even Barnabas, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Strong language. But what is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is acting differently than how we believe. So he wasn't accusing Peter of not believing the gospel. He was accusing him of not acting in accordance with the gospel the same gospel that they had affirmed together in Jerusalem. But Peter's example was so overwhelming that what did he do? He split the church. Because as they saw Peter withdrawing from the Gentiles and eating only with the Jews, some of the other Jews started thinking, 
wow, maybe we shouldn't be eating with the Gentiles. Maybe we should go back to the dietary restrictions. And so there was a split in the church. Instead of being able to join together, they were separated. And the rebuke is in verse 14. It says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the Gospel. They were not denying the Gospel in word, but their actions were not in step with it. There's the hypocrisy. It was not in step with the truth of the Gospel. I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all... By the way, private sins are rebuked privately. Public sins are rebuked publicly. And we see that principle here. Why didn't he just take Peter aside? Because it was a public sin. And he had to rebuke him publicly. And he said to him, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And Peter might have said this, I'm not forcing anybody to live like a Jew. And we have no evidence that Peter was saying to the Gentiles, hey Gentiles, stop eating that food and start eating the Jewish food. So what's this accusation? This accusation is this. Peter, by his example, by separating from the Gentiles and eating only with the Jewish Christians, was making a two-tier Christianity. And was saying, if you really want to be a first-class Christian, you need to follow these customs. And that's where the pressure would have fallen on the Gentiles. They would have said, oh, well, we want to be first-class Christians. We don't want to be at this, this second table here. We want to be real Christians, genuine Christians, devoted Christians, doing all that Christians should do. And even though Peter never told the Gentiles, hey, stop eating that, come over and eat here with us Jews, his example was putting pressure on them to conform to the Jewish customs. Now, putting this all together, we can conclude that Paul's opponents in Galatia what they were doing is they were trying to compel Gentile Christians to be circumcised, that is, to become Jews, and to live like Jews in order to be real Christians. So they were adding requirements to the Gospel. You should believe in Jesus Christ and be circumcised and follow these dietary restrictions and follow these calendar restrictions and so on. In fact, we find in Acts an explicit example of some men preaching this. Acts chapter 15, it's on page 1023. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It says, But some men came down from Judea, where Jerusalem was, and were teaching the brothers, this is the Gentile brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So there were some that were explicitly teaching that in and around Judea and to the north into Syria and Cilicia and also apparently as we know now up into Galatia. This teaching got up into Galatia which is the occasion for which Paul wrote this letter. The church rejected this idea out of hand. They met in Jerusalem in chapter 15 of, uh, of Acts. They discussed the issue and they rejected it out of hand. Why? Two reasons. One is, it perverts the gospel. It perverts the gospel. It changes the gospel into something that is no longer the gospel. It makes it a false gospel. 
The second reason is, the effect that it has is to divide the church. So it's not only bad theology, it produces bad behavior. And by the way, that's what bad theology does. Bad belief produces bad living, and that's what was happening. And we find both of those things going on in the church in Galatia, and we will see that as we go along. If you will turn over to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, we'll find why that is such bad theology. And we find it because Jesus came, and Jesus died, and He gave His life, not just for Jews, but also for non-Jews. And He did so not to create two groups, but to create one group. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says to the Gentiles, He says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, what is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The Gentile situation was bleak indeed. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made us both, what? One. And has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. We both. There's not a a Jewish way to get to God, and a non-Jewish way to get to God, there is Christ. And He is the way, only way for anyone to have access to God. Why? Because He's the one who gave His life to die for the sins of all who will trust in Him, Jewish or non-Jewish. Now, to demonstrate this, we jumped over a verse back in Galatians, to demonstrate that the apostles in Jerusalem were completely in agreement with the gospel that Paul was preaching. If you look at verse 3, it brings up the case of Titus. And he says here, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So there was a test case right there back in Jerusalem. The apostles in Jerusalem never said anything about circumcising Titus to make him a, a Jew. So it was completely rejected by the church as destructive of the gospel and destructive of the church. Now, you might say, what does this Jew-Gentile thing have to do with us? Well, we live in the county with the 12th highest concentration of Jewish people in the United States. And we live next to the county with the 4th highest concentration of Jewish people in the United States. And we would perhaps find this to be much more relevant to us uh, if many of these Jewish people 
would begin to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and join in our churches. Then we would be in the situation of trying to navigate how do you do fellowship meals together? How do you have activities that are not offensive to others? And how can we join together? Now this idea of uh, Jews recognizing Jesus as the Messiah may be offensive to some, but we need to realize that it was at least as offensive at the beginning that people like us could become Christians. We were the ones who were sort of spoiling the party. We were the ones who people were saying, really, people like that can come in? And it was shocking that non-Jews could become Christian. And now it might be a surprise to others that Jews can become Christians and still maintain uh, their Judaism in some of their customs that don't conflict with the Gospel. And in fact, many are. Many are these days recognizing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah that was promised to the nation of Israel. And that they are first in line and we are second in line. And God has extended His mercy to us by allowing people like us to come in and recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. But in the meantime, before there is perhaps this influx of Jewish people into our churches for which we pray and hope, But in the meantime, we have other barriers that faith in Jesus Christ needs to deal with. Uh, Things like black and white. Things like Hispanic and Anglo. Things like richer and poorer. Things like Democrat and Republican. uh, Things like older and younger, less educated and more educated. So even if our our exact situation isn't the same as it was in that original church, we do still have the same sort of challenges to demonstrate that there is one Savior who died for Democrats and Republicans who will trust in Christ, and for the richer and the poorer who will trust in Christ, and the black and the white and everything in between who will trust in Christ, that He has given His life, to break down those barriers. Something that we will see later on in Galatians, that that Paul extends it out and says, not only is the dividing wall between Jew and non-Jew broken down, but other dividing walls are as well. Sometimes we fail rather spectacularly at showing the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. But other times we demonstrate to the world that Jesus Christ has died for us all. And one of the most heartening lessons I have ever heard about the unity of the Gospel and the unity of the Church of Jesus Christ came from a Chinese student who was a professed atheist. And he was trying to get a visa to go into Canada to live or to study there. I don't remember which. But he found out, and this is how immigration systems work around the world, he found out it was easier to try to get a visa by going to Mexico City and going to the consulate, the Canadian consulate in Mexico City, rather than trying to get one uh, in China or get one in Canada. And so, I got a communication from a pastor in Canada whom I did not know, and he told me about this young man and said he would be coming to Mexico City. And could we help him out? And I said, sure. And so the young man came, and I don't remember, we're talking about almost 30 years ago, I don't remember exactly what we did for him, but we might have picked him up at the airport, or we certainly had him into our home, we had him for a meal, 
Uh, we also set up housing for him with one of our single male missionaries. And uh, we tried to get him to his appointments and so on. And he told me, uh, he asked me first, he said, do you know that pastor in Canada? I said, no, I've, I've never heard of him. I don't, know, I don't know who he is. He just looked me up and he looked for a, a fellow believer and he, he put me in contact with you and that's why we're doing this. He said, you don't know him. I said, no, I don't know him. He said, this is remarkable. And he said, I've discovered this wherever I go. He said, wherever I go and I need help, I look for Christians because I have discovered that they will always help you and they will not take advantage of you. And he said to me, you all are like one big family. And I said, praise be to God. Praise be to God. He said, you don't even know that man. You don't know me. And yet, you're here to help me. Why is that? And I had the opportunity to explain, as I think he probably heard some before, but I had an opportunity to explain to him the whys. Why an unknown pastor in Canada and a, uh, an American missionary in Mexico City could be working together to help a, a Chinese student? Why? Because we are in Christ who gave His life for us. We are, in fact, one big family. And I praise God for that testimony of that, that atheist student. And I pray and hope that that would be what everybody notices about us always. That they'd be able to look at Florida Coast Church, they'd be able to look at all of our churches as we do our various things and as we cooperate together, as we reach out to various groups and are able to join together in unity, that they would be able to say, I've never seen anything like it. What has made this happen? They are indeed one big family. Let's pray. Our God, we're well aware of how we have failed. Peter failed, and he took some of the Jewish believers along with him, even Barnabas. We have failed throughout the centuries, sometimes mistreating Jewish people terribly. And we have failed at local and individual levels as well, as well to demonstrate the unity of the gospel. But we thank you. We thank you that in spite of our failings, that there is an extraordinary witness that the church of Jesus Christ has. Because Jesus gave his life for people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we thank you that we have the opportunity of ministering here in South Florida where we have many from different tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. And we don't know how diverse our church will be or can be, but we pray, O oh God, that our church and all of our churches would be able to express our unity and be able to express our love for the people for whom Christ has died. And we pray that people would recognize that we are indeed in Christ one big family. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.